0: As one of the countries uh, particularly exposed to imported hydrocarbons, uh, ha- has been a leader in this for a long time. Although I, I think it's um, it- it's given back some of that lead. But yes, I think uh, Japan's been uh, been good at cutting its um, its energy usage. Uh, so, you know, primary um, energy per capita is is uh, very low, especially bearing in mind the um, uh, the GDP levels.
1: So, is this? Nuclear theme, is it a good investment theme?
0: I th- well, obviously, it's had a, a, a good run all, all the way through the year. Um, so I'd been talking about Tokyo Electric Power from the start of the year or some, from the end of last year. That's had a heck of a run. Um, I've run in, uh, switched into uh, Kansai Electric Power, and uh, um, uh, that's, uh, that's harder going. But um, nuclear restarts, I think, are... Um, Inevitable, and they will benefit uh, nuclear um, nuclear power companies. There's also the question about the uh, the builders, which is more complicated because um, uh, globally no one's been building, or or, or there's been very little nuclear building for uh, a very long time. And uh, when they start building them now, they they tend to have problems on cost overruns. But um, you you could uh, certainly look at the uh, the heavy. uh, the heavies in Japan, Mitsubishi heavy industry for example as, uh, as plays on uh, on the, the need for nuclear rebuilding
1: Thanks very much Nick, good to talk to you, that's Nick Smith Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3 And in Tokyo the Nikkei 225 down a quarter of a percent uh, here in Hong Kong looks like it's going to be a flat open for the Hang Seng later on this morning Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow morning at eight o'clock. Back chat's coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast mainly cloudy, few showers and thunderstorms. Uh, the maximum temperature is going to be about 31 degrees, occasional showers and thunderstorms on Wednesday and Thursday. Temperature right now is 26 degrees, 93% relative humidity. Times 832. Here's Andrew Schwosky with the Half Hour News.
2: A man who died in an apparent suicide outside the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C., has been named by police Richard A. York III from Delaware, drove his car into a barricade and fired shots in the air before turning his gun on himself. Police say they still haven't discovered any motive for the incident. Health officials here have again called on parents to inoculate their children against COVID-19 after yet another infected toddler ended up in intensive care. The 27-month-old boy developed croup, which narrows the airways, and was critically ill by yesterday afternoon. He hadn't been vaccinated, although jabs for under-threes only became available just under a fortnight ago. A chief manager at the hospital authority, Lau Ka Hin, spoke through an interpreter.
3: His difficulty in breathing continued to worsen, and then he um, presented with croup, and intubation was required to assist his breathing. He is now in the pediatric ICU of Princess Margaret Hospital in critical condition. We appeal to parents once again to not hesitate. Take your children to get vaccinated to enhance protection as soon as possible. Vaccination against COVID-19 is the most effective way to prevent serious conditions and fatalities.
2: Hong Kong reported just under 4,900 new COVID cases and four more deaths. A former president of the Hong Kong Automobile Association, Wesley Wan, says fines for dumping unwanted cars or motorcycles should be increased to $10,000. He said the problem of abandoned vehicles has become pretty bad, with motorbikes dumped in alleyways and unwanted cars left in the new territories. He told RTHK that the current littering fine was $1,500, while it could cost around a few thousand to arrange for proper disposal. Mr. Wan was commenting on the government's new cleanup drive that was launched on Sunday.
4: The new law was presented to the Legislative Council in May. And if it gets passed later this year, it will be introduced in 2024. And the new law is about if a vehicle has not been registered for two years, then it will be deregistered by the Transport Department. So the owner will be warned. They will give you some time
2: to pick up your own trash, and then you will get a fine. The fine now is $1,500, but they are going to increase it, of course. The police say they have introduced a new mechanism that monitors public opinion online using big data data to fight against disinformation. Chief Superintendent Karen Zhang from the force's newly upgraded public relations wing says what happened during the 2019 social unrest showed that fake news could be destructive. So
3: we We feel that the police have the responsibility and the need to find this information as quickly as possible and to clarify it. The aim of the mechanism is to understand what's being escalated online or what kind of smearing is going on that needs clarification. If we fail to clarify in a timely manner, it may cause misunderstanding among the people, especially young people, about the government or the police, or even generate hatred.
2: The news from RTHK.
5: Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is James Ockenden. Good morning, James. Good morning, Jim. Ada Wong, our regular Tuesday host, is not uh, able to be with us today, so uh, James is here instead. Uh, As you may have heard in the news, uh, health authorities have renewed their calls for parents to have their children vaccinated against COVID-19. That's after it emerged that another young child, aged two, was being treated in intensive care. The boy developed the condition known as croup, which involves breathing difficulties after suffering from fever and flu-like Symptoms latest figures show that about three point seven per cent of children aged from six months to under three years old have received a covid injection since it became available to the age group on August the fourth. A government medical advisor who will be joining us in a moment has described the number as far from satisfactory and is urging parents not to wait for a BioNTech version of the jab as Sinovac is just as effective in reducing fatalities and serious illness. At the same time, government officials have said they're still negotiating with BioNTech to procure its children's vaccine type which is uh, one-tenth of the dosage of the adult version. More vaccine outreach services for kindergartens and child daycare centres will also be organised. After nine o'clock this morning, uh, we'll look at the issue of subdivided units in industrial buildings after the Society for Community Organisation estimated that about 12,000 households are occupying such spaces. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 266. And we're pleased now to welcome on the line Professor Lao Yiu-Lung, the Chairman of the Scientific Committee on Vaccine Preventable Diseases. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jim. James. Thanks, for, thanks very much uh, for joining us, uh, Professor Lau. So uh, just looking at the latest vaccination figures, uh, as I said in the intro, uh, so about 3.7% of uh, children in this age group have now had the jab. That was quite a big jump from the previous day's figure, which was around 2.8%. Uh, uh, do you think that might be a result of the uh, p- publicity surrounding the latest case of this uh, two-year-old boy being uh, admitted to intensive care?
4: Yeah, it's uh, possible, Jim. Mm. And um, what I'm really thinking is, um, what what much would aim uh, in terms of vaccinating this uh, very delicate um, age bracket, that is six months to three years old. I, I am fully aware of the worry and the concern of parents of such young children because they receive a, a lot of sort of uh, information that might be at times contradictory. So I see my my own position is try to inform the public through you and many other um, soft press, obviously, uh, the latest and what we know that the factual uh, benefits of receiving uh, the vaccine. And obviously, I've learned about this case uh, yesterday morning, uh, even before the 4.30, and I really connected with all the reporters that I've got in my WhatsApp uh, group Mm. and alerted all the parents, hopefully, uh, through the press, so that since yesterday, uh, children of this age bracket would be able to get the vaccination in what we call the MCH, that is the maternal child health uh, clinic. Uh, some, of the, some of the listeners of your program might not realize that it's the government outlet to check the baby's development and to offer all the free-of-charge uh, vaccination that is included in the government vaccination right, program. Right,
6: these, these are the MCH that you go to after you've had a baby yeah, for regular jabs
5: right. and stuff, so right. It's right. Uh, so
4: convenient. Can you, you just turn up, up there booking. then? Yeah, you don't need to have any booking. Right, right. Uh, you just uh, nod your head and then you'll get the vaccination. And that is uh, the way uh, to go. Uh, in fact, in a lot of you know other um, sort of countries and regions like uh, the UK and, and so on have all, always stressed and there's the opportunity not to be lost. And one of the opportunities is when a baby or a child, a young child in this category, are uh, going for a health check, and then they will be offered the vaccination. And and that is what exactly what the government is hoping to achieve through the M6C, and because that would reach a large segment of the children, uh, because I think nearly seventy or eighty or even sometimes uh, during a period of time ninety percent of the children of that age bracket actually would go to NCHC for their vaccination. That's right, yeah. So that is uh, one way to get easy access. But, of course, easy access is one. And the other factor is the parents uh, would accept the, the vaccines, you know. So vaccine acceptance, uh, in fact, is, a, is an extremely serious business because a, a lot of the countries and regions have very low coverage uh, for this age uh, bracket, even though they've got access uh, to vaccination.
2: Uh, so
4: my task uh, is to explain... If you don't get vaccination, what would uh, happen? And of course, over the weekend, you know, the previously the five years old girl who's had this terrible encephalitis, mm-hmm. which is so terrible, it actually destroys most of the the brain function and need to be in ICU, and then, uh, suddenly yesterday, oh, my God, another one, mm-hmm. and within a few days admitted uh, ICU because of the other condition. And you've already explained it's a croup. Uh, so ba- basically, the air tubes of babies are very tiny and any inflammation with swells of the mucosa, that is the lining of the inside lining of the airway and making the air passage very difficult. And you can imagine if the air passage is small, a small baby hasn't got a lot of muscles, and and therefore they need to pump very hard. And and usually the baby's airway is also very soft, very pliable, so they cannot stand up. So when they breathe in and breathe out, especially when they breathe in, then the airway will collapse inwards and making the obstruction even worse. And resulting in a, a sound what we call stridor, and I could mimic it for you. <clears throat> so you you could hear, I, I I was breathing in, and I deliberately used my neck muscle to compress the airway, and then resulting in that sound called mm. stridor. And that is the classical sort of signs of obstruction. Uh, when you breathe in, when a baby breathe in, the airway collapse but because the diameter is so small, and then and then even smaller after the inflammation, and then they result in that narrow passage, and they cannot get enough oxygen uh, to the lung and then to the blood, and then they become uh, confused and they become very weak, um, and then finally they need to go to hospital, need the oxygen, need a lot of medicines to damp down the inflammation, and finally all that failed and uh, there's no choice. You have to get the baby uh, to the ICU and put the tube down,
6: yeah. What are the and prospects for those? What are, the, what are the prospects for those babies uh, and, and toddlers uh, in ICU right now? Do you think they're, they're, they'll pull through? Um, uh, for the f- five years old, the, the,
4: the outlook is extremely um, self-regarded, extremely poor, I would say, mm. uh, because all the imaging that they've done, uh, and I've been told, um, there's a, a large area already gone, got destroyed. That is what it's called ne- necrotic. It's it, it's it's so nasty.
6: It, it, it's what we yeah. call
4: the acute necrotizing encephalitis. Like necrotizing means all the brain tissues necrose. Necrosis is, is medical term. What it means it it's all broken down by inflammation, by disease, uh, and 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 so on. And as far as I could get from the MRI report, it it, it just um, it made me so sad. And mm. so. Uh, in a way, although the child is still "quote-unquote" uh, critically stable or ill in the ICU, uh, even if if she improves, so she will have a lot of residual damage. Uh, you need a lot of rehabilitation, and whether she can fully recover is a big question mark. I'm so sorry to to say uh, such details um, in the air, you know. I mean, if the parents are listening to your yeah. program, their heart will be further broken. You know. Yeah. Of course, I'm quite sure the the pediatrician in charge already briefed them about the dire uh, situation. But I, I feel this is my responsibility to 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 inform the public through your program and through many other radio programs and. Uh,
5: the, the true facts, and, and, and then let the parents to decide. Yeah. Now we've the, been. A- yeah. Sorry. So is there. I mean, there there is still a long way to go, though. Is, I mean, at the moment, something like three thousand eight hundred eighty, uh, doses in total have been uh, given to this uh, uh, young child age group. But there must be, I guess, there must be around about hundred thousand in that in that age bracket. Um, uh, am I correct there? And uh, yes, uh, you are uh, correct, yeah.
4: James. Uh, yeah. The total pop. Uh, of that age category is 123,000, right. right. and so um, I'm thinking. Uh, <coughs> although it's uh, the, the rates gone up a wee bit, and I was uh, sort of really checking numbers, and now I think um, yes, I think we got 400 uh, children of this age category got vaccinated. If we could, through our sort of concerted efforts, mm. to explain to parents about the benefits uh, of vaccination. And, uh, hopefully, if you could get the daily number to 600 or even to 800, then we might reach that critical
2: 50 or 60 percent uh, by end of this um, year. Because in a lot of social science research, when you get
4: the numbers up to, say, about 25, 30, 40 percent, and then you get a, a tipping point, what we call. Mm. And that tipping point will suddenly give out a very loud message uh, to all all the parents, oh my God, no one in four, oh my goodness, one in three got vaccinated. Okay, maybe I should go. Once you mm-hmm. reach uh, uh, one half, then it's it's really a tipping point. So I think becoming the majority has got vaccinated and then people would just follow. And then as you could see, we had a hard time for the three to 11 and within the first month or two, but then the tipping point came, but of course it's pushed by the Omicron um, you know, in, in March. So I'm thinking it might assume S shape, so initially it's very slow, and then we just keep put on and make sure we've got good access for everyone, and all the doctors should explain uh, know the, the facts
2: as well as all the, the benefits or even whatever risk involved, um,
4: and then let the parents choose, and then we just keep put on, and we, we don't give up. So by September, then we might reach the tipping point. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Or so maybe end of September we reach the tipping point. Uh, so just before autumn and winter, we've got this tipping point, and then it will just shoot up uh, to 40 or 50 or even 60 percent. So that that is my hope, and that is my whatever I personally set target, I suppose. So that's why I've been talking to radio and TV nonstop since yesterday yeah. morning.
5: Yes, yes. Sure. It? I, 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 so, so, sorry, James, uh, just to uh, ask quickly, are, are you still observing um, um, vaccine hesitancy among some adults? What, what, is, what is the reason for the, for the relatively low uptake at the moment?
4: I think the adults, uh, in terms of working age group, they're pretty good. Um, I think we should be reasonably proud, uh, if you look around the global figures, that the one age bracket that makes my heart still ache is the 80-plus or the 70-plus yeah. Uh, because if you yeah. look at the figures, uh, there's still 30% uh, of 80 still not even got one jab. And mm-hmm. then the 70 to 79 is about uh, 20%. And that actually translates to about 100,000 for each age bracket. And we all know that this is the highest risk group. Uh, in fact, if you have got one jab, for well, 80 plus, your your death rate is uh, 16%, nearly 20%. If you have three jabs, it's a white puppy, 1%. If you're in the 70 to 79, if, if you get all the free jobs, but basically it's 0.1%. Mm. So I don't know how to get through all this message, um, but, but I just promised myself keep 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 talking to the press and I will not give up and yeah. hopefully it will sink in one day. But I, I think it's sinking in. Uh, at least the figures is much, 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 much better uh, compared to earlier on this year when my heart really uh, very broken
6: yeah, they, and knowing Omicron um, is coming. Looking at the, the three to 11 year olds, there's still 100,000 of those that aren't vaxxed. They're still at sort of 80% uh, first dose, right? So that's probably the tipping point you were talking about. It did go up and then it's flattened again. How can we get that S curve? How can we get that last 100,000 uh, to go? I mean, they might be the most stubborn. Um, yes, but in a way, um, I, I think the government should uh, and has been
4: doing is to make it so easy for the elderly, they go. To the homes, and they visit the elderly homes, and, and they keep educating. Because some of these elderly folks, um, they look after them by their own relatives. So we have to change the mind of the relatives. Yeah, no, I'm, they
6: will, uh, I'm talking about the uh, the three to eleven year olds here.
4: Oh the yeah, that's and not then, not a the, great the takeoff. is uh, coming up to, uh, I think it's eighty percent, right nearly. seventy-eight. Yeah. Most, yeah, yeah. So it's coming to eight. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, some of the parents will 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 not take uh, the children for vaccination due to personal beliefs or whatever. That I respect. And then uh, out of that twenty percent, I think another ten percent will 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 be vaccinated uh, in due course, and that would take um, maybe another two to three months. If you observe all the figures, it's like that. Yeah. Um, it's like a-
6: Now we have to have uh, to get to school we have to have a vaccination record full of the MMR and, and the measles and whatnot. Um, do you think there's a case that there might be a, a, such a requirement with the COVID vaccine in the, in the very near future uh,
4: in Hong Kong we do not actually require children to have full vaccination record to attend school um, in the um, United States vaccination uh, should be put in such a high priority override uh, school attendance that is uh, not correct in my mind okay. um, so <laughs> i've been advising the government you we should not put that in um,
5: yeah okay. uh, just going back to the uh, to the very young age group uh the under under the age of three uh, uh, at the moment um the uh, sinovac Shot is available. Um, do you have any information about the BioNTech uh, shot? Because uh, uh, that presumably will uh, be available sometime soon.
4: I, I do not have uh, inside information. Our role as advisors, that's uh, also in the vaccine committee, is to yeah. look at all the data. And we recommend both uh, vaccines are safe as well as uh, effective in reducing sort of, the severe disease and deaths and this age bracket based on. The information that we've got; those informations are really the immune response after
2: uh, vaccination. Um, and then the negotiation with the
4: suppliers are really up to the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I, I could uh, sort of narrate our previous experience. For you know, there's an adult version, and then you've got a, a children version that is one third dose. And I don't think the government is successful uh, in the negotiation to get that one third dose, uh, which I will call the children dose. Now the baby dose is even more complicated. It's one tenth.
5: -tenth, Uh,
4: So I know the government is now negotiating, but all Mm -hmm. these, um, um, you know, in in a way, it it is all done in in not secrecy, but because you you, you have to sign a contract with the suppliers. Everything needs to be in confidence. And that's how the vaccine suppliers have been operating the last two years plus. Um, So the government needs to sign an agreement with the suppliers, you cannot divulge uh, any steps or any pricing issues uh, because they're all competing with each other in, in, in their strategy of how to
6: promote their own vaccines. Are we allowed to buy it? As, uh, is Hong Kong allowed to buy it and then do the, the dosing ourselves? I mean, we are a sort of technology innovation hub, we keep hearing. I'm sure it's possible to take a, a tenth of a BioNTech dose and put it in a oh, bottle.
4: Right, OK. So the, the way that we get ran off the, of the five to eleven. uh, We get the pharmacists, uh, you know, all the experts and testing it and find out, yes,
6: difficult. I can't, you know, I, I have a yeah, vaguely because scientific brain. A but, volume, yeah.
4: um, uh, if you are doing it in a research lab, maybe you can do it, but mm-hmm. if you want to scale it up uh, in the community vaccine center, it might be difficult. Right. I, I do not know because, um, you, know, um, uh, uh, you know, like in like our profession, we are very finely divided in our expertise, so I would not assume I know a lot of how to um, sort of do it in, in a in you know, a you know, reliable way, uh, I think that's the task of the pharmacists as well as the pharmacologists and you know all the all, all the sort of you know producers of vaccines and, and so on. So we are tasked them to to test it out. Uh, of course, the easiest way is to buy the basic version, then uh, no one will quibble the safety and no one will quibble the quality and, and, and so on. So I think the government is still trying very hard.
5: So, uh, Professor Lau, I mean, what would your message be? What would you say to uh, parents who may, for for whatever reason it may be, may feel uh, reluctant to take their very young children along to get uh, a COVID injection?
4: Okay, the first message, I still respect them. Uh, I do not feel they are lesser citizens. Uh, That's point number one. (coughs) Point number two, uh, after saying that, I would plead them, I would beseech them, um, because... uh, You, an adult, you can make your free choice, but your babies, uh, six months to three years old, cannot make a free choice. So, should you actually take yourself out of your own perspective and context and look at whatever evidence you've laid out on the table in a very objective manner? And if you think you cannot do it in an objective manner, perhaps uh, you should confide with one of your good friends actually hold a slightly different view from you, uh, who's actually taking the vaccine, basically, and try to listen. uh, If you are religious,
6: Yeah, no, I, I did meet an anti-vaxxer last week and it was very difficult because uh, there's, no, there's no getting through. They're, they're sort of hardened to the arguments that, you know, this uh, the sort of China is bad and BioNTech is made in China, which is not correct. But, you know, even their wrong beliefs, they're sticking to. And I think by this stage, at two years in, it's very hard to, to change minds. So do you think we're just kind of stuck with those the, the anti vax views now? But they, they should
4: um, re-examine their positions because of course they can make their own choice because they're adults. Yeah. But the children they are they cannot make their choice, and so if it's to be fair, uh, they should go through all the steps in terms of ethics uh, with one of their friends that they they believe in and they, they they trust. Whether it's a religious leader or it's I don't know, it's their in laws or it's their cousins or brothers. Or Mm. I don't know what would they go through in their mind. Yeah. Uh, they would blame themselves for the rest of their lives? Mm. This is so terrible. Mm. Um, so if they've gone through that I and mean, they still make that decision, at least they've done their homework. Um, and then, <coughs> and it's at least that so be it. Yeah. Mm.
5: Okay. OK, well, thanks very much for speaking to us uh, on the programme this morning. We'll be, obviously be following this uh, development of this issue f- uh, very closely. That was Professor Lau Yulung, the chairman of the Scientific Committee on uh, Vaccine-Preventable Diseases. Uh, we're going to take a break for the news summary. We'll be back at three minutes past. Uh, we'll be talking about subdivided units in industrial buildings uh, in the second part uh, of the programme. Um, quick look at the weather, mainly cloudy, with a few showers and thunderstorms, Uh, more showers later on. Uh, The outlook, uh, occasional showers and thunderstorms on Wednesday. as tomorrow, still a few showers. On Thursday, it's currently 27 degrees, humidity 93%.
2: You're listening to the news on RTHK.
5: And welcome back to Back Chat with James Ockenden and me, Jim Gould. And in the second half of the programme this morning until 9.30, we'll be talking about uh, the issue of of, uh, subdivided units in industrial buildings. Uh, Now, the Society for Community Organisation, which is uh, SOCO for short works with low-income families. It's suggesting that the government suspends removal orders for industrial buildings where there's no safety risk because it reckons there are about 12,000 households are renting uh, such spaces uh, to live in and that of course is uh, not strictly legal. Anyway we'll be going into this in a greater depth. Uh, if you want to join in the conversation you can leave a message on our Facebook page Backchat on RTHK Radio 3 you can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can give us a call on two double three double 266 and with us now uh, on the line is uh, Esther Wu who's a community organiser with so And also uh, Yip Naiming, who's a professor at the Department of Public and International Affairs at uh, City University. Um, Good morning to you both. Uh, Perhaps, uh, um, Esther Wu, we could come to you first. Hello. Hello.
7: Good morning.
5: Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, So we're talking about uh, 12,000 households renting Uh, such units. So so what is the sort of total number of people we're talking about? I mean, how many families, how many of those would be singles?
3: Uh, We have conducted uh, research recently. According to the government figure, they they estimate the resident is about 7,000 households, but Mm -hmm. we think uh, the figure is underestimated. According to the funding, uh, CCF funding, the application number, of industrial building is usually 1%. So we estimate there are 12,000 households are living in industrial building now, and 50% of them are singleton, mainly uh, middle age, and elderly people aged from 50 years old to uh, to 16 years old. And most of them, about 90% are working. But however, 90% of them uh, working for a part-time job, so we can see the uh, their income is not so stable, and so all family uh, we can say is a low-income family, which median household income is just about nine nine thousand dollars per month.
5: Um, and what sort of conditions are they living in?
3: Uh, in our research, thirty-four uh, percent of them are living in cubicle, and twenty-six are living in flat-based apartment. So the condition is not very good, because most of them have to share toilet with others, and their living area is say per head medium medium area per head is just forty square feet.
6: Forty square feet, and, and these these industrial buildings aren't really designed for living in, are they? They don't have uh, much natural light inside. There's the, the, the plumbing isn't exactly designed for for showers and stuff like that. It's more for just a basic toilet for workers. So the, the, the conditions aren't great, are they? Uh, yes, because um, most of them have to share kitchen
3: with of five people, right. and some of them um, without the windows.
0: Uh, that,
6: that number, twelve thousand, it's a big jump on what the government's estimate of seven thousand. So, do, why do you think the government is underestimating this, or, or how is the, how do the two uh, calculations differ?
3: uh Because by taking reference to the application number of fund, funding of the government, and usually we have find one percent of them are living in industrial building, and another ninety nine percent are living in residential building. So, uh, as the Get on the figures now. Uh, they have estimated about 127,000 people living in, in at the housing. So we just use that the digitized times one percent, and we estimate there are 12,000 people. Yes, sure. actually, yeah. yes, and actually, the resident in industrial buildings have a strong sense of protection. Yeah, because they very afraid.
6: They, they don't want to reveal to the government they're living in an industrial building. Yes. Obviously, yeah.
3: Yes. Um, <laughs> so they're very afraid to be fined, right. because uh, the government uh, is estimated to
5: take a shot. Uh, Yip Naimin, good morning to you. Yeah, good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. So, so how big of a social problem are we talking about here?
7: Well, I think it's a, a problem that's worth attention, because it's very undesirable if people have to live in the industrial building. Uh, not as they have said the safety hassle and also there is a lot of sugar uh, health hassle and also because they're illegal so there is not protection there. Mm. So I think that is very undesirable.
2: Mm.
5: Uh, SOCO is urging the uh, government to suspend removal orders um, but uh, I mean if people are not allowed to live in industrial buildings, I mean, they must be pretty desperate to do so in the first place. I mean, what what are the alternatives?
7: Well, I think there is little alternative we have because I, I believe, in fact, the government have already very softly relaxing the removal order because of the, the need for so-called resettlement of those who live in the industrial buildings. So I think there's also a dynamic for the government. But I would not suggest the government publicly announce a official relaxation of this removal order because that may be sending a wrong signal to those to landlords who, who believe that it, it's safe to set up a divided unit in industrial building to make a bigger profit.
6: Yeah, and it's a moneymaker for them, isn't it? Because they can uh, put uh, 10 or 20 cubicles in a very small place and charge 3,000 each. Uh, it's, obviously, it's obviously quite a money spinner. So why the government did do quite a lot of work on this in sort of uh, C.Y. Lung's reign, uh, and then it all kind of dried up in Carrie Lam's administration. Is that because, was that a softer touch, or was that because of things like, you know, Theresa Cheng's unauthorized building works? They didn't want to highlight the issues of, uh, of unauthorized building works.
7: I think there are multiple causes of that. I mean, one is because of the need for resettlement, so if there's no so called, proper policy for resettlement, and that will trigger some uneasiness of those who, who live in these subdivided units. And the other, I would also say, is, is the manpower constraint of the government, because you need a lot of so called, manpower, because it, you, inspecting those um, illegal residential units in, residential, in, in industrial buildings is a very time-consuming job.
6: Well, I mean, that's their, that is their job, though, isn't it? I mean, they, they, they will go and inspect and find nothing often. But when there are cubic homes there, they will look the other way. That's, that seems to be the reports that are coming out.
7: Uh, not necessarily so, because uh, industrial building, in fact, come into different forms. So it is very different, in fact, to detect whether you have the, the um, uh, residential building, uh, residential unit within the industrial building. And also, I would say that the uh, security guards who guard the main door, main entrance of the industrial building, they must be instructed to detect any of these abnormal people who go into the building. And they will alert the residents, perhaps. So it's quite difficult. Mm.
5: Uh, Are there any penalties for the landlords who uh, operate these kind of premises?
7: I think so. I think so. Uh, um, penalty in in terms of fine because they are violating the land grant.
6: Mm. Yeah, but and there's there's only been a handful of prosecutions, mm. doesn't there? I think there were some in 2015, 2016. Is not that, that many
7: because yeah. uh, because the 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 action in removing those uh, illegal building in industrial in industrial buildings are not that frequent.
6: Yeah. Going back to, to Esther, I mean I know there's, uh, there's some illegal maid hostels, in fact quite a few, in commercial buildings and industrial buildings and these are pretty nasty places and uh, I've heard stories of fire alarms going off and then the people are actually, the, the, the maids living in these hostels are afraid to come out because they'll be detected. Uh, do, do you think they have gone under the radar completely, they're not presumably even counted in your 12,000 families living in these sort of uh, cage homes or industrial sites?
3: Actually, from our observation, we find there uh, is usually some sprinkler system and uh, the fire alarm in the new industrial building. Compared to some old building, resident old residential building, we think uh, maybe living in industrial building is more safer than living in the uh, old building in old district. And actually, our resident. Um, most of them, about eighty percent, think living in industrial building, they do not find any safety problem. But um, mostly, most likely, they will have some uh, mental uh, feeling, mental stressful, because they always afraid to be evicted by the government or the landlord. Uh, but actually, they they find living in industrial building is quite safe. So we that's why we ask the government to do some safety assessment uh, but do not to drive them
6: out at one off. Yeah, could these be actually used for housing? I remember there was a trend a while back for these industrial buildings to be converted into art galleries and art studios uh, rather than sort of hardcore industrial work. So do you think that the the, and some of the the art spaces are actually very lovely but do you think these could be converted into homes into smaller sort of uh, resettlement homes themselves if there was a if there was a will?
3: to not industrial building usage. And some studio is quite uh, expensive. And uh, when we find the resident in the industrial building, uh, some of them have rent uh, and quite, quite uh, living in a room in the industrial building is renovated into studio. And with some very decent, it's
5: uh, a more decent place compared to the Okay, I have a couple of emails here from listeners. Uh, this one from Hugh says uh, uh, No matter how you approach it, it is so depressing that in such a rich city, some of us must raise families in substandard living conditions. It must be given top priority if Hong Kong is to raise its head high. And this from James says, uh, not strictly legal, but an immediate solution to housing issues. Uh, The cost of uh, upgrading fire and safety issues uh, should not take as long as uh, landfill and new developments, which will take probably 20 years. Uh, This is a crazy discussion that has been going on for decades. Mm. Can anyone explain why? Um, uh, Yip uh, Naiming, the... Uh, Hong Kong is committed to phasing out uh, um, subdivided units um, over, over the uh, next few, well, uh, certainly by 2047. And um, the chief executive, the new chief executive, John Lee, is uh, um, making such matters a priority. Uh, would you expect now to see uh, renewed efforts to tackle uh, this uh, longstanding ongoing issue of substandard housing?
7: I think there's a good intention, but uh, technically it's very difficult because there's already a chronic core problem that lingered in Hong Kong for decades. So there's no quick solution. So all solutions involving land and building new housing uh, takes not years but decades to complete. So I would say that such good intentions need to to coincide with very big, big efforts that put into that. So I don't think the government is determining... To do this at least in the, in the next, next few years, in the short time.
5: Are there any short-term measures, do you think, that could uh, easily be done now?
7: Uh, there may be one possible solution. Uh, for instance, we can extend the rent uh, allowance coverage that is offered to the uh, public housing applicants who are living in a uh, uh, subdivided unit. If that can cover those not in the public housing uh, application list, And that may help some of those residents in the industrial building to sort of bridge the gap between their affordability their affordability so that they can afford at least a normal, quote-unquote, subdivided unit, but not to resort uh, to industrial building for the solution.
6: Right. What about using the the community isolation facilities? That was something that was mooted recently. There's a lot of space there, a lot of uh, sort of housing, so to speak, for sort of transitional housing at least.
7: So that's also a, a, on, on the agenda of, of so-called uh, um, putting those uh, isol- uh, the, the, those housing into into um, uh, trans- at least transitional housing. But because of the, the location of those facilities, even if you turn it into transitional housing, it may not be that convenient for the residents. Okay. So that is the problem. So why the, the progress is is not that smooth.
5: Right. Um, Esther Wu, I mean, most of us live in relative comfort. Uh, Probably um, many of our listeners have uh, never even seen such a place as we're describing, um, you know, a housing unit in an industrial unit in an industrial building. Uh, Can you uh, uh, give us a few examples? Can you tell us a few stories about about the people that you spoke to during your survey, about, um, you know, what life is like for them living in such places?
3: I have this example. Uh, I have a family is a four four people family,
2: yeah.
3: and the husband is living in industrial building. And, but at the very beginning, they live with he lived with his wife and two daughters together in industrial building. But um, because uh, living in industrial building is quite uh, danger and dangerous, and he think it's not good for her do- his daughter, and so. He, he rent a residential subdivided unit for her, his wife and two daughters and they are now living separately and they have to afford two rents, uh, one from industry building and another one from the residential subdivided unit but um, there is no way out because he is just a uh, driver who can only earn about uh, 10000 per month and so uh, 10,000 to, to uh, 12,000, I guess, per month. So it is hard for him to uh, rent a whole set for his whole family. But, however, uh, he has killing for the public housing for about six years already. But uh, he is now uh, still waiting, and I guess maybe he, his family have to wait about four more years to
5: be housing. So if he's paying uh, what would you say uh, 10,000 a month in rent uh, sorry so he's earning 10,000 a month what what is he what is he paying for those uh, two units? Uh, 10,000 is uh, his household
3: income
5: right yeah, yeah
3: in under so under Covid-19 because he's, he's a
6: driver right. but his and rent is 10, what it must be five six thousand very stable right
3: and the rent now
0: is uh, about
6: 7000 right hmm. who so are the landlords he, he, here who are the people that are it? is it like one big company owning all of these or are these individual owners of industrial units that are just letting them out on the sort of like chancing it
3: uh, for his case his landlord is just a private landlord who own a flat on the rooftop of the industry building
5: So, what sort of uh, solutions would you suggest, would you recommend uh, to help these people out? Uh,
3: We hope the government can give them some relocation allowance to pay for the removal expenses. And also, we help them to have more uh, rental allowance to sustain their life when they're living in the uh, residential subdivided unit because the income of them their family is not so stable mm. uh, so they, they can afford to rent a whole flat that 's why they have to live in greatly in, in industrial building and a certified uh, unit it is very weird for for a family and it's not good for their child to go
5: yeah of course so that relocation allowance that would help them to move out of the uh, unit in the industrial building into a, a domestic uh, subdivided unit. Um, uh, but I mean, are there enough? Is there enough sp- en- enough of those places available?
3: Maybe, maybe they can apply for some uh, transitional housing. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is another problem, because most of the residents reflect their problem is that they have to work. They would like to live in Kowloon or live in their uh, own place, like Khun mm-hmm. like like Chong. But uh, most of the transitional housing now are located in new territories. And so if they house to transitional housing, uh, when they waiting for the public housing, their, their kids uh, have to change the school to new territories and it is not convenient for them to work. So uh, I think most important and most useful way is to increase the supply of uh, public housing and that the family can can wait in just three years and can have uh,
6: public housing. But the, but the public housing plans, I mean, most of those are going to be built up in the new territories in the northern metropolis anyway, right? So they're going to have to, if people want public housing, they're probably going to have to be in that location. Do you think these people are, you know, if, if you if you want that, you will have to accept that and maybe just improve the transport links to Kowloon? Uh, yes, uh, if for public housing, it is fine to
3: have it in their territories, because they can uh, change their job and change the school right. at one time. Uh, the transition housing is just living for two years, yeah. so it's very hard for them to uh, change school to the territories, and when they get the public housing and have to move back to Kabul, uh, it's so complicated for yeah. them.
6: And it's a long wait. I, I I know there's a long wait for public housing, but your your tenant you just described six years and then maybe another four years still to wait. I mean, it's it's insane, really. What what what's this is the underlying problem, surely? Uh,
3: for because uh there's a part of public housing. There's more, uh, mainly it's the small family unit. For the people, uh, with four, for the family with four people, mm. it is quite a long time for them. And usually uh, from our observation, it's like literally about 10 years for them if they're waiting for their proper house in Kowloon or uh, Hong Kong Island.
6: Yeah, that's tragic. But the
3: part mm. of like, family unit is not enough. Mm.
5: Yeah, yeah. Uh, your survey also found that the median rent of those uh, industrial building units was about uh, $3,000 a month and that was 40% cheaper than the average uh, residential subdivided units. So, I mean, even if those uh, people are given a relocation allowance, given some assistance with uh, rental costs, I mean, would they be able to afford to move out into uh, residential units?
3: uh, living, <laughs> it is really relatively lower yeah. than the domestic unit. Uh, but I guess we can educate them to consider more about their safety. And and actually, it's really illegal. And we really mm-hmm. not encourage them to live in industrial building. So if we have enough relocation allowance, we can have we can help them to find a more decent place in domestic building. But uh, actually, it's quite hard to afford as the domestic rent uh, unit the rent is about 5000 but i think it is, it is something we must do it because uh, it is not great it is not very good to for family to live in industrial
4: building
6: no not at all mm. so what i mean you've been how long have you been uh, campaigning on this uh, as to how long have you been with uh, with soko
3: on this project, about uh, two years. But mm. before that, we have no uh, many residents living in the industrial building about ten years ago.
5: Yeah,
3: we tried to work with them, but and, and we can see most of them, even they move out to move out from the inter- industrial building, they move in into another industrial building. Mm. We can see they living like a loop. They cannot. We cannot kind of finally rent a domestic building so we have this idea to publish, to publish this research and hope the government can suspend the removal yeah. audit. Because uh, w- it is, yes,
6: what's the government's response been? Because your figures, you know, it's twelve thousand. It's getting on for double what the government thinks. So, what what has the government said to you about this? Anything?
3: I think it's quite hard for the government to do the research because most of
6: the uh, residents they refuse to... No, I I get that. But what's the government said about your figures? I mean, presumably, I mean, we've got to trust your figures because it sounds like quite a a, a good scientific rationale for those. But what is the government's response to the fact that there are 12,000 families living in these conditions?
3: Actually, our estimation is also based on the figure provided by the government. They have some projects
5: like a community care fund. Hmm. this is based on the application number of their funding okay uh, um, professor Yip um, just on the issue generally speaking of uh, housing supply and land supply and there are two major projects uh, in the pipeline there's the, the the northern metropolis that was announced uh, um, during the administration. Of uh, Carrie Lam, the previous chief executive, and also the uh, East. Well, what was the East Lantau Metropolis, which then became uh, the Lantau Tomorrow Vision? Um, just just projecting forward a few years, how much of a difference do you think those uh, uh, plans are going to make?
7: Well, if on the on the bright side, if those projects can be carried out, of course, I mean, we will expect a very good improvement in land supply and housing supply. But there are two problems, one is, uh, are we able or do we have capacity to launch the two big projects at the same time, so that is something that we are going to concern, and the other is the long time, long lead time between so-called having planning and uh, and making the land and then to build houses, so I think these two are the the issues I think the, the government has to, to
6: resolve, well, to they're underway, it. though, aren't they, uh, Professor Yip? I mean, I've actually seen surveying vessels out in East Lantau, you know, measuring for foundations. So they're, they're getting on with building that. And uh, Northern Metropolis, we know they're sort of staking out areas already. So they are they are getting on with it. You, you, you may say that
7: because these are not uh, new projects. Uh, mm. But uh, there's no... Planning not yet being released. So in fact, we don't know. Well, not released, but I bet it's
6: being done. <laughs> <laughs>
7: that is something we worry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah,
6: because the
7: worst case is uh, they do it bit by bit and without a comprehensive planning, and then you come up with chaos.
6: That's exactly what's going to happen, is my theory, you know. <laughs>
5: oh, okay. okay. Sorry, Jim. Um, no, uh, well, and also those projects uh, will be following them uh, in the uh, coming years. Uh, um, Coming up to 9.30, so time to bring this morning's programme to a close. But thanks very much to our guests uh, there, uh, Professor Yip Nai Ming from the Department of Public and International Affairs at uh, City University. And thanks very much to Esther Wu, community organiser with the Society for Community Organisation. Email here from uh, Guy. Oh, just points out uh, with a link to a BBC news uh, site about a um, a story that uh, they had this morning about uh, the UK being the first country to approve a dual strain uh, vaccine against uh, COVID-19. Covid, another of our regular discussion issues. Um, Thanks very much to everybody who wrote in and thank you to our listeners and thanks very much uh, to you, James, for being this morning's co-host. Thanks, Jim. Let's keep shining a light on this uh, illegal building stuff. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, a look at the weather. Before we go to the new summary and morning brew, it's going to be mainly cloudy. Uh, With a few showers and thunderstorms, Uh, top temperature around 31 degrees, light winds becoming moderate easterlies later. The outlook, occasional showers and thunderstorms tomorrow and still a few showers on Thursday. It's currently 27 degrees, humidity is at 88%. Stability is the cornerstone of development. For the past 25 years, Hong Kong has been resilient when
4: facing challenges. Today, we embrace more development opportunities. Through integrating into the national development and with the advantage of one country, two systems, Hong Kong will boost its economy, improve people's livelihood, and consolidate its international
5: standing. Let's build Hong Kong's future together. A new era, stability.